the keynote was about labels and how I'm constantly one of those people who has their like clothes labels sticking out the back of their clothes because I just get dressed in the dark um and everybody's always like very kindly tucking in my labels they're just like oh Benny bless you um and I talked about that as a kind of metaphor for who we are and the fact that uh, the clothing label people often cut them out or hide them away. And we were reluctant to label ourselves as a community because, you know, you, you feel like you're going to be pigeonholed. And my point was, you know, the point of a clothing label is to give care instructions for that item of clothing. And if I am that item of clothing in this metaphor, I want people to know what I need. Hi, I'm Adam. Hello, I'm Joan. Welcome to Pride and Progress, a podcast that celebrates the progress of LGBT plus inclusion in education. In each episode, we speak with LGBT plus people and allies. We hear their stories, discuss what they're doing to make educational spaces more inclusive and celebrate the power of diversity. Hello and welcome to Pride and Progress. This week we are joined by the wonderful Benny Cara. Benny uses she, her pronouns and is a deputy head teacher in the East Midlands, specialising in curriculum, teaching and learning. Benny started her career in the inaugural cohort of Teach First in 2003, teaching English in East London. Since then, she has taught in four London boroughs and in South Oxfordshire before returning to Derby. Benny co-founded Diverse Educators in 2017 and has since published a fantastic book called Diversity in Schools and is frantically working on the second one. Benny, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. It's really good to be here. Benny, Adam said there that you're in the inaugural Teach First cohort and then you've taught in a variety of schools in London and elsewhere. Could you tell us a little bit about your experience as a teacher? Yeah, so um, I feel like the grandmother of Teach First these days. I started in 2003 and we were known as the guinea pigs um, and we had to basically kind of feel our way through the beginning of uh, our careers because it was obviously so brand new, this idea of like kind of teaching on the job um, in that format. And I, I feel like I was pretty much thrown in at the deep end. Um, uh, and in some ways that was great because you know you have such a massive learning curve um but in other ways it felt really untested and, and slightly kind of terrifying um and one of the things that i was really struggling with was being a, a gay teacher in this environment where actually you know and i've said this previously and it's not a criticism of teach first per se but it's a you know it was a very kind of um white heterosexual environment there were other gay teachers and we sort of found each other um within our training and, and set up this kind of fledgling um lgbt organization in teach first which then was kind of taken on and has become their network um but it did feel like we had to band together because we were in such a minority. And then I was thrown into working in a school in East London um, with a large ethnic minority population. And people, I think, assumed I'd be OK because I'm Asian. Um, but then being Asian and gay uh, kind of, you know, it led to all sorts of things. And uh, I didn't necessarily know how to handle that. But progressively throughout the schools that I've taught in I've kind of got more comfortable with the idea of who I am as a teacher and how my LGBT identity intersects with my race and in the environment of the school and I've uh, become more confident over the years I think in just being myself um, and not second guessing uh, who I am. 
I think that's incredible that you you started an LGBT organization in your training year. Um, that kind of work was was not on my radar in my training year. I, I, very few things were. It's an overwhelming time. Um, yeah. I wonder. It sounds like you become more confident and more comfortable being yourself in in educational spaces as you've gone through your career. Could you tell us a little bit about maybe the first time that you came out in an educational space as a teacher? I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm not the kind of teacher who has the confidence to come out in every school setting. Uh, and it took a few years before I was able to um, kind of freely express myself and then even really only with six formers. Um, and so I think the time that stands out to me as a school in South Hackney that I was working in I'd been there for five years and that's how long it took me really to feel comfortable to say to some students actually no you know I am gay and talk about my partner um I was actually going through a, a, a breakup at the time and and the fact that I was able to talk about myself more honestly um suddenly it suddenly became more important to be able to do that because I felt like I needed support and so that was really the first time that I kind of uh came out it, to children um in terms of staff I'd always been out I think I was probably more tentative in my first school just because I didn't and it was 2003 and I didn't know what I could say and we had only just had uh kind of legislation change um but certainly staff had never been an issue I'd never felt like I'd um had any issues telling people that I was gay but for, for students it always been more of a kind of gray area um but the students responded really well and some of those students that I came out to in that school were so welcoming of me and so um understanding of my identity um and so open about their feelings about it you know they were like oh that's we've never we've never had someone tell us that before um that it felt really liberating um and for some of those students who are ethnic minority students as well I thought okay here I am as an Asian woman saying look I'm gay and people didn't make that assumption about me uh, my hair wasn't this short um when I was uh when I was in my 20s so there were no kind of codes to give it away I guess um but yeah that that was the first time and then uh a few years later in a really safe space actually because the my boss was um Hannah Wilson who is formidable um you know there's a lot of homophobic bullying going on in school and I said to Hannah I think I need to I think I need to tell the kids and this was a startup school so we're talking year seven eight um and I did what I now affectionately call my big gay assembly in which I put up uh, objects that were called gay this sharpener is gay that bin is gay my friend is gay and then I showed them things that were actually gay like Greek history uh pertinent figures and then the last slide was me okay hello I am also gay when you use that term as an insult that's what you know you're talking about me um and I was petrified <laughs> I was absolutely terrified but they were so good and parents came up to me afterwards and said I've heard you've done this in assembly and um, I'm really impressed and our gay parents came to talk to me about it which was lovely. That's lovely to hear the reaction you got there Benny and it actually resonates a lot with um, we spoke with Helen Richardson a few weeks ago and she talked about coming out in an assembly and you know jokingly talked about the way that the next day a parent came in and bought her a coming out pot plant because it had been such an important experience for her and the family and things to talk about so it's yeah. great to hear the impact these things have no matter how kind of terrifying they are. I'm really interested in it there. You talked about intersectionality um, and mm -hmm. obviously being um, an Asian teacher and a gay teacher. Mm -hmm. 
there's a really interesting dichotomy, isn't there? Because some of our, um, you know, in terms of protected characteristics, some are visible and some are invisible. And that brings its own set of questions and dilemmas. So I wonder how you've approached that. And have you ever felt a tension to be visible, obviously, as an Asian teacher and as a role model and as an LGBT teacher? Can you just talk a little bit about that idea? Yeah, I mean, for me, you know, because I'm visibly Asian, that, that people make assumptions about my sexuality because, um, you know, within certain circles, within certain cultures, the idea of homosexuality just isn't spoken about. It certainly wasn't when I was a child. Um, and so the assumption is that if you are Asian, that you are less likely to be gay. Um, and so people have make assumptions about me all the time and probably far more so than my partner gets. You know, I'm people are surprised. Um, and you know, I do feel a sense of responsibility because, you know, there are lots of people who are Asian and who are gay. And, you know, our visibility is really important because there's so many myths to dispel around uh, race and sexuality. Um, and I'm also conscious of the fact that, um, you know, there are sort of multiple barriers working um, against me um, in terms of my career, in terms of my uh, kind of everyday life. I'm, you know, likely to face kind of multiple sets of microaggressions. Um, and I often talk about kind of facing the emotional attacks of that. So, you know, for me, intersectionality is hugely important you know I'm not I'm a woman I'm Asian I'm gay I have an invisible disability and you know when you start to kind of add those up there's a kind of weariness that comes with it um, but in saying that you know I felt like certainly more recently I've wanted to be more visible as an Asian woman who is gay and I've uh, actively sought out people who are like me because I felt very lonely actually um, being out um, speaking in kind of teaching circles as this person uh, and more recently there is more there are more of us um, and that's really lovely actually because there are unique sets of circumstances that you do want to talk about with people who are similar to you um, and it feels like more of there's there's more of a community there although again still really limited you know um, I would say the majority of my LGBT circle, my network is white. Um, and occasionally I find someone who's Asian and gay and think, oh my God, I found a unicorn. <laughs> it's my own private unicorn. <laughs> I've, I've heard Hannah talk a little bit. Um, and, you know, I know she says these stories with your blessing, but when I've heard her talk about kind of the origins of diverse ed, she talked about, you know, um, well, just to take a back step, we always talk about the fact that a lot of the diversity and inclusion work is extra. It's on Saturdays, it's after school, it's done for free, and, and that's draining in itself. But she talks about with your intersectional identity, you found yourself that every Saturday you're going to a different event for a different kind of quote unquote marginalized group and that emotional tax and that exhaustion. So perhaps tell us a little bit about how, how thankfully they've been able to come together through diverse ed. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I mean, it it's it sounds silly, it sounds like it sounds like it was a bit of a joke, but I think my diligence in trying to be involved in everything you know women ads lgbt ed, disability ed, fame ed, uh, meant that i was actually literally kind of going right i'm going to this conference on this day let's hope it doesn't clash with this conference and i jokingly said to hannah at the gate when we were on duty one morning and it was this vicious didcot wind that was blowing in our faces in the gale and i said hannah i'm really tired you know like I feel like I have to kind of park bits of my personality. And that, again, isn't a criticism of those individual organisations. It felt like we needed to broaden the conversation and um, overlap the conversation 
um, more than we had been doing. And, you know, Hannah was in a point at, the, at that point where she had um, stepped down from the executive leadership of Women Ed. So she had a bit more time. Um, I had a bit more time. And so we talked about diverse educators being that intersectional space um, where, you know, actually we were talking about very similar issues, but we weren't talking about them in isolation. And the inaugural Diverse Ed Conference happened at the school that we were running at the time. And um, I talked, I, I was the closing keynote at that session. And um, I did I did make some fairly rude jokes, which I won't kind of repeat on the, the podcast. Uh, they were in tiny... You must, you must. <laughs> well, let's just say scissors were mentioned. Um, and I'm not entirely highly sure why that came out of my mouth in front of a crowd of 200 people um now it's hilarious at the time I was like oh my goodness I'm so sorry um but yeah the 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 keynote was about labels and how I'm constantly one of those people who has their like clothes labels sticking out of the back of their clothes because I just get dressed in the dark um and everybody's always like very kindly tucking in my labels they're just like oh Benny bless you um and I talked about that as a kind of metaphor for, for who we are and the fact that uh, the clothing label people often cut them out or hide them away and we were reluctant to label ourselves as a community because you know you, you feel like you're going to be pigeonholed and my point was you know the point of a clothing label is to give care instructions for that item of clothing and if I am that item of clothing in this metaphor I want people to know what I need um, and that was the kind of point of the conference around the fact that we're OK talking about our multiple identities. Um, and since then, obviously, it has really kind of taken off. Um, we um, have a kind of website now and, and Hannah does most of the work. I usually kind of follow her and occasionally pop my head up because I'm still teaching. Um, but we wrote the Diverse Educators book, we edited the Diverse Educators book which is due out on April the 11th we're cutting it very fine sent the proofs off two days ago um <laughs> yeah not, um and yeah that's that's been a massive labor of love um but I'm, I'm really hoping that it will embody the diverse educators um ethos and people will see what it's really about I I've been involved in a, in a few diverse educators events now speaking at some and guests at some and they really are fantastic because it is bringing together such a diverse collection of people, but there are so many threads that we have in common in terms of what we're trying to achieve in school and the types of educational spaces we're trying to all build together. And I'm assuming that that same kind of everyone working together for, for the same goal will be kind of running through the book as well. Could you tell us a little bit about the Diverse Educators book and what people can expect from it? Yeah, so first of all, it's a beast. It's uh, over 500 pages long and there are 110 contributors, including our chapter editors. And it's split down into the protected characteristics. Um, and then we've added intersectionality as a chapter as well, because we felt like that was the kind of crux of us anyway. And within each of the, the protected characteristics chapters, there are 10 sub chapters and they've been written by people who identify with that characteristic. Um, and I have to say, you know, so many important threads came out of, you know, when we've been reading it, uh, the commonality of experiences across some of the protected characteristics and the advice that's being given, because each chapter has a commitment um, that, you know, you, you, you read and you want to go away and take into schools and, you know, the, the, the need for stories. You know, people's stories being told in schools has come out as a really, really strong thread. Uh, the need for mentorship. Um, the need for safe spaces, 
um, you know, all of these things across the protected characteristics, you're getting the same ideas in race as you are in sexual orientation. Um, and interestingly, you know, this kind of the ones that you see as perhaps less common, you know, like age, for example, even there, you're seeing some of the crossovers. And I don't think any of the chapters are particularly single story either. As much as there is an intersectionality chapter, every thread, every um, strand of the protected characteristics seems to have those overlapping uh, um, identity issues built in, um, which has been really heartening because I think it speaks to this kind of universality of experience when you are a marginalized group. Um, and the fact that those people have come together and put their time in to be able to not only just tell their stories, but to um, provide kind of lived models of how to do things differently. Um, that's the thing I think people will see is, okay, yeah, there's some common threads here. I'm, you know, I'm listening to your story. The power of lived experience is hugely important in the book, but we've couched it in research. And what, that's one of the things we said, you know, we didn't want this just to be a book about, um, personal personal stories even though that's woven in um, what is what's the landscape when it comes to that protected characteristic and education and hopefully you'll see um, the kind of wealth of resources that people have tapped into um, to be able to get their chapters in I absolutely love the metaphor you used a minute ago Benny about the labels and actually you know if we're going to be labeled yes is it in that sense of care instructions and the things that we need and you've, you've touched upon a few really important ideas there that need for stories relationships safe spaces and even though Every protected characteristic is different and has, you know, different needs and things. It's really, really helpful that we can share those stories. And I can't wait to read the book. Um, the book launches in April, I think. Can you just share the details with listeners that'd like to attend? It is, yeah. So um, if you go to the Diverse Educators Twitter page, you will be able to see the link, um, the Inventbrite link for it. It's April the 26th is the launch. Um, the book is available for pre-order now. Um, so it will land on your doorstep, hopefully on April the 11th or 12th. Um, and the launch itself is going to be our, some of our chapter editors and contributors talking about their their work um, and hopefully um, people will be able to kind of see the process but also why it was important for them to take part um, we've had people who have been in the circuit you know like have done all of the the conferences and then some people who haven't who really new to the scene um, and have started to use their voices and we want to give them a platform because I think sometimes it's it's true that you can hear the same people over and over again and I'm totally to blame for that I do pop up quite a lot but there are other people out there with some stories too <laughs> I think it's also nice that it's not always the loudest voices. I mean, it's great. We have so many amazing speakers in different spaces and reflecting different intersectionalities. But you're right. I think it's really, really important for people to hear the voices of those that aren't as perhaps as vocal or perhaps have had a more difficult experience, whatever it might be. So I think magnifying that and giving them the platform is really, really important. Yeah, definitely. Um, and, you know, they've all been fantastic, really organised. It's it's quite a feat to put that that many people together. Um, and it wouldn't have happened without them just being super on it. Um, and I'm just really proud of all of them. I'm, I'm really excited to get my hands on, on the copy of that book and to read it. Um, both you and Hannah are fantastic. Um, for anyone listening who hasn't heard, we had an episode where we spoke with Hannah in our first series. So do go back and check that one out. The work that Diverse Educators does is, is brilliant. And I'm really excited to read that book. Um, but 
you also have your own book um, called Diversity in Schools, which is a little guide for teachers. Adam's waving a copy in his hand at the moment. Um, I'm always really interested when people have got a book out in the world to hear about kind of where it first started, almost that moment that you realised there was a need for this kind of book. So I'm going to make a confession. I didn't realise there was a need for this book. I mean, I sort of knew that there wasn't a book. I just didn't ever think it would be me writing it, um, which is ironic because one of the things I've always wanted to be is a writer um, because of my strange obsession with Anne of Green Gables. Like I managed the teaching side of uh, you know emulating Anne Shirley and didn't manage the writer's side. I always thought I'd write fiction. Um, and then I was contacted by a wonderful woman called Delena Spencer, who's my editor. And and she said, you know, look, we're, we're doing this series of books, you know, little guides. And one of them really needs to be a book on diversity. And I thought, oh, fab. Yeah, I'm going to love that because I want to be a writer and I'm going to find that really easy. Um, and it turns out that my approach to writing is horrific. Um, and it is, I mean, like a, a little bit of hideous that I'm not comfortable with. Um, the... <laughs> let's just say my, my ability to procrastinate when I should be writing allegedly this thing that I love is unparalleled and I, I spent you know the year uh write a year writing it and bear in mind it's a 15,000 word book it's a it's a long essay essentially and it took me a year to do it because that I couldn't sit myself down and actually write it and I think that comes from being terrified of what your writing might be perceived badly so my perfectionist kicked in um, and eventually it manifested into this book and I didn't think that it would you know kind of make any waves and and actually I'm really pleasantly surprised that people have been so open to it um, and like just really heartened that people have gone do you know what you've you've changed a bit of my practice um, and I thought that meant that I'd be able to write a second book um, and that I would be better at it but uh, it's uh, equally hideous and it's still going and it's going to be late. So you heard it here first, folks. I'm a terrible, terrible writer. <laughs> I mean, you couldn't hear because me and Joe were on mute as you were talking, but when you used the phrase, I wrote down a level of hideousness I'm not comfortable with. I was howling. Um, but I think we can all relate to that no matter what it is we're trying to do, can't we? But um, anyway, that's not a fair, well, I mean, previous drafts may have been that way, but this book is absolutely sensational. And I recommend this to anybody um, that I talk to, especially our trainee teachers. Um, I think the way that you've structured it, first of all, to be a small book that's pick up and usable is really, really important. And there's such a variety of things in here. You've got reading lists of really great literature people can refer to, key vocabulary, which often, you know, is the thing mm. people worry about, ideas of the classroom, case studies, and these lovely sections, which you've um, called note it down sections, where at the end of each chapter, you've asked people to reflect on a particular set of uh, stimuli or questions. So, for example, uh, the first section is, I know how to explain the history of terms related to their LGBT status and their cultural significance. And then it asks you to reflect, how confident are you in this? And uh, if not, why not? And then action, what actions can you commit to in order to better this aim? So can you tell us a bit about how you've approached the book and then the ways in which people can practically use it to make their classrooms more inclusive? Yeah. So during this hideous process, I recognised that people didn't want to hear the ramblings of uh, an overly conflicted, multiple protected characteristic person. And it couldn't it, did, it couldn't just be my story, um, even though I've woven in bits of myself into the book. But um, the fact that it's short speaks to the fact that I'm a teacher. 
And, you know, when I'm reading edu uh, books, I often am, I'll read it and I'll read it in snippets. But, you know, this was too important to be kind of drowned, I think, um, and put on shelves for later. And I wanted to make sure that it was digestible in chunks. And Delena was actually really, really insistent about that as well. You know, she said, couch it in research, couch it in the kind of academic, but make it practical because people don't have time to go away and enact change in the way they want to when they're, they're wading through something. Um, so, you know, we, we had a clear structure of what the book would look like and I worked to it and I stuck to it pretty, pretty rigorously. Um, and the, the series itself, you know, all of the books in the series have these kind of reflection uh, sections. And what I really wanted to do was not necessarily, you know, kind of like create a resource or, you know, write a lesson, but actually kind of develop our thinking when it comes to um, identity um, you know I've had to do so much learning about different protected characteristics and I think that's the key to all of this this book was 15,000 words it was never going to give you every single answer it was never going to have enough capacity to do that so how could I then um, draw people's attention to what they needed to think about and where their blind spots were and you know draw their attention to the further reading that they needed to do so that's how it came about about. Um, and I, I kind of worked on um, some assumptions that people had more knowledge about certain areas than others. Um, so, for example, that idea about terminology and LGBT history, you know, I think people are not very confident at talking about LGBT history, whereas actually people will talk about race in, in, in a much more confident way. So what do they need to know so that LGBT history isn't just the history of oppression? Um, and, you know, how do we make that part of a conversation uh, and a reflection? So that's that's the structure of it and how it came about. Um, and I put in a lot of books that I read, you know, ones that were most useful to me uh, into the book, uh, because I wasn't going to recommend things that were just sort of generic. It was, you know, this has actually kind of made a proper difference in my life. So here you go. Have a look. I think that point that you made then about the fact you've had to do a lot of learning to prepare yourself to, to write a book like this is so important because the more we grow our understanding of different protected characteristics, um, it's really important that we don't forget that we weren't born with that. We weren't born with gender literacy or understandings of race relations in the UK. We've done a lot of learning to get to that point. And what this book does is help other people to start that journey. Um, it really is a, a starting point for, for classroom teachers. And Everyone that I've spoken to has had such high praise for the book. Me and Adam love it. What has the feedback been like for you? So, um, obviously, uh, being who I am, I um, can only fixate on one bit of feedback, which is the only three-star review of the book um, on Amazon, um, which, you know, whenever Anna asks me how the book's been received, I was like, well, there was one woman who didn't, it, it didn't uh, help her at all. Um, and so if I obviously I have to then flip that um, to the other reviews that are quite good. Um, I'm not very good at kind of saying it's done well. So I'm going to say it's done well. Um, the, the feedback has been very much as you've been saying, it's kind of e easily digestible, really useful. Uh, people use it as a little reference. And, uh, you know, it started to appear on um, university reading lists, which for me actually is a real victory. You know, you can, you can have an edgy book out there, but does it form part of a fundamental conversation for in ITT and that's where I think you know you can make the biggest difference growing teachers 
Um, so for, for, for me, the feedback, that kind of feedback is really, really important. It did. Um, so my publisher um, awarded me a social justice award last week um, for the book and their rationale. I, I just I was really heartened by their rationale. You know, the thing that's making a difference in education circles, it's been in, you know, kind of the uh, top 20 books in particular categories on um, uh, international booksellers, online booksellers lists. Um, so I know, you know, like there is there is evidence that it's doing really well, but I'm still fixated on that one three star review. And I don't think I'll ever forgive her. Um, if you're out there, you ruined my life. Thanks a lot. <laughs> Our podcast on the Apple Store has got one one star review oh. and it keeps me awake at night. Like, how <laughs> offended were you by our podcast? They went, no, this is the worst podcast. I've gained nothing from it and I'm deeply offended. Because, you know, <laughs> five star, lovely, four star, I'll accept the one. Yeah. That's personal. <laughs> Just mean. <laughs> Just rude. Just rude. That's amazing that um, it's on university book lists. I think that's so important. And because... The book includes story and it includes research and both of those things can be frightening, but it's done in such an accessible way. And the, the chapters are somewhere between kind of 10 and 15 pages each. So it is kind of pick up for mm -hmm. teachers because, you know, we're pretty busy. We're, we're time poor people. Um, but So it is accessible for people to access it. You mentioned earlier that you are working on your second book, which you anticipate to be late. Are we able to discuss that? Can you tell us a little bit about what we can expect to see in that? Absolutely. So Delena and I had a conversation um, and I, I said to her, look, Delena, I'll do it again, you know, because I know how to do it now. And she said, look, you know, you want to you, you didn't feel like you had enough space to talk about the curriculum. And actually a lot of my training in the last year and a half has been on diversity in the curriculum. That's my area of specialism. Um, and I've really kind of started to hone um, some kind of strategies that are so practical for people when thinking about diversity in the curriculum. So I said, look, let's let's turn this into the book. And she said, yeah, I'm going to give you 50,000 words this time. And I was thinking, oh, that's great. That's like a proper grown up book. Um, and then again, you know, I was like, there we go. Let's I did the research and started typing and found myself pausing in every sentence because I just didn't feel like it was good enough. Um, and I didn't feel like it was couched in research enough. Um, and I've had to really shift, shift my process to go just write, Lenny, write, write what you know, and then come back to it later. So what it will include is... Um, this idea of kind of how how do you create a diverse curriculum without being tokenistic um and, and that means that we have to really delve into some curriculum theory there because uh, you know if we just say we're going to do a, an lgbt unit in english you know you're really kind of almost reinforcing this idea of other like let's put a, a shrine to to lgbt people in our curriculum and it doesn't it shouldn't work like that and my whole concept was drawn from um sue sanders's work um i'm a big admirer of, of sue's um kind of philosophy on how to weave in a, LGBT experiences into the curriculum, this idea of usualizing, and I make it very clear that that is her concept, but I've taken it on and applied it elsewhere. Um, and so, you know, when you are creating a curriculum that is diverse, how are we usualizing the history, the music, the stories, the, the perspectives of LGBT people, Asian people, you know, different cultures, different abilities, etc. Um, so yeah, the 50,000 words is uh, going slowly. Um, it's possibly due out this year. Delena, if you're listening, I'm really sorry. 
um it, I'm conscious that she could hear this we've not had this conversation yet um and so um I am excited about it because it it really is the the embodiment of my philosophy on diversity in the curriculum and it, again it should be really practical because people don't have time to rewrite things they've got to adjust adapt as they go well, first of all, I feel we are left out as the only person here that's not written a book uh, between the two of you. <laughs> I mean, I th also, Joe, would it be fair to say that, I mean, it sounds like both of you accidentally wrote books. Is that a fair comment? <laughs> Just fell into publishing really by accident. But Adam, you wrote a thesis, which is much longer than my picture book. So don't say yourself short. I'm pretty certain your thesis is longer than my book as well. So, you know, let's do, let's just tell it what exactly that's that's more than 15,000 words. I'm telling you. Um, so, I mean, your second book sounds really exciting. And, and again, a really, really practical resource. Um, it'd be really lovely then if you could just perhaps distill some thoughts and some practical things, because actually, I think in, being, in terms of being a good ally, which is a lot of what your work is about, I think whether we're talking to teachers here or leaders, what do you think it is to be a good ally and what are kind of some quick wins that people can do to be better as an ally? I'm completely um, obsessed with this idea of unlearning. And, you know, the, the fact that we are products of our own education, I think sometimes is the biggest barrier. So what we've been taught, we tend to re re rehearse and recycle in, in the classroom. And that's a really comfortable space to be in. Uh, and I absolutely understand why people do that. Time poor, resource poor, you know, actually expertise poor in some in some cases. Um, but I was really interested in some research that I did um, on post uh, de decolonizing the curriculum. Um, and there's a guy called Boaventure de Souza Santos, and he wrote something called Epistemologies of the South. And he said that we are, I suppose, conditioned to uphold some power structures in our, in our society. And there's three, the triad, uh, colonialism, patriarchy, um, and capitalism. And so much of what we do upholds those power structures. And it occurred to me that allyship is very much around unlearning some of those structures, um, examining how complicit we are in um, kind of uh, reinforcing things that are the status quo, um, how, um, how we present a lack of resistance to those ideas. And actually the act of unlearning means, you know, taking a really good look at some of our biases, um, and that sounds really simplistic, but our biases as um, they are seen through the lens of colonization and not just colonization in terms of race, you know, colonization in terms of the body, uh, colonization in terms of sexuality and how all of those, these, those things are interlinked. And so uh, a good ally to me is a reader, you know, somebody who will go away and go, I don't know enough, or I think what I know is blinkered in some way. I have a single narrative, if you know, if you can take the words of Chimamanda Ngozi Adichie. And so, you know, for me, someone who goes away, picks up a book, comes back and goes, yeah, I'm going to teach something slightly differently because of that. that that's that's the that's the kind of act of allyship that we're talking about. Um, and there's so many people out there who are talking about the need for diversity in the curriculum. And I'm watching and I'm saying, I get I get that you're an ally, but what are you doing? Um, and for me, that that's the crux of it, like the active allyship um, and not just allyship as a result of big international kind of events um, to do with one protected characteristic. How does that cross over? How does that overlap? I, mean, I think I think, Joe, that links in really nicely with the idea of diluted activism we talked about a couple of weeks ago, didn't we? Yeah, I think this idea of, of diluted activism, I've been thinking about a lot recently because 
we, when we on this podcast started hearing people talk about being activists as teachers, I, I was frightened by that word. My initial reaction was that activism is quite scary. And I, I think of protests and placards. And I think that what I'm doing in the classroom, I can't compare to the big acts of, of these kind of household names that have fought for equality. Um, but what I think teachers are doing in the classroom is a diluted form of activism. And when I say diluted activism, wh when we dilute something, of course, we, we make it weaker, but we also increase its capacity. We make it larger. And I think that if we can dilute our activism as teachers, maybe our actions aren't as strong as some of the great actions of protests that we, we've learned about in our history but they have the capacity to spread into all of our schools and all of our classrooms and our conversations and our communities. And I think that's where the real change happens. Mm. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. Um, and I guess, you know, people worry that they're not doing enough. And, and certainly when, uh, like you said, people in the classroom are saying, well, is it enough that I'm changing a text? Is it enough that I'm having this conversation? And I will often say, yes, it is enough because these conversations weren't happening 10 years ago, weren't happening when I started teaching in 2003. Um, and so the fact that we are able to have some of those conversations as small as they might be, you know, it's the, it's the snowflake uh, metaphor, isn't it? And you know, as, as much as I don't want to use that metaphor, it's still a really good metaphor um, that together it's an avalanche. Um, I mean, we could I could go with um, as an English teacher, I'm metaphor heavy at the best of times. But, you know, our, our activism is like squash. You know, it's not a shot of vodka. It's like squash. It lasts longer. It tastes really nice. Um, and, and long term, you know, you know that you can replicate it over and over again. It's not that expensive either. Um, but the yeah, never be afraid. Never be afraid of doing the small things um, because that's how things happen. You know, that's how change happens long term. First of all, that's a brilliant extension of that metaphor, I think. Um, but no, you're right. And I, that is the message, isn't it? It's the small things that make the difference. And like Joe said, I think people are fearful sometimes thinking I'm not doing enough. If everyone does a little bit like you described as the snowflake, you know, the change is massive. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I'm really proud of people for asking questions when they don't know the answers because um, people are scared. You know, what if I say the wrong thing? Um, I'm terrified of offending someone. And, and that whole argument about offen offence is something that I scoff at anyway um, but you know the question I'll get asked in training is you know what if I say something in lessons and I'm challenged on it and well okay you're challenged on it it's a learning moment for all involved I've had situations where I've made assumptions or kind of got it wrong and, and children have said to me actually I don't I don't think that's that's how it should be explained and I've gone okay all right let's let's rethink that um, and I think it's the mark of an exceptional um, practitioner who's able to take that feedback um, recognize that it needs to be done differently and, and go away and do it differently. Benny, you've shared with us some really great advice for what teachers can do to be good allies, um, particularly around homophobia and transphobia. We've talked a lot in this conversation around intersectionality, and you mentioned at the beginning that there was some kind of frictions um, for you as a gay Asian woman when you started teaching. I wonder if you could share any advice. Mo most of our listeners are teachers. Do you have any advice for teachers on how they can best support people who exist within the kind of intersectionality of, of race, sexuality and maybe gender? Mm, definitely. I think recognising both the barriers and advantages of those people is hugely important. We can't just take a deficit model. I recognise that there are barriers to my progression uh, on a systemic level. I recognise that. 
and you know I'm not sitting here pointing fingers it's a systemic thing and I will navigate that but what people don't often recognize is what somebody with an intersection identity like mine brings to the table and quite often the intersectional leaders that I have met are hugely empathetic um, and hugely able to take that multiple perspective approach that some leaders don't have a, a, a kind of regular experience of. Intersectional leadership is is fundamentally inclusive um, because you are navigating these spaces you are more likely to be able to see a child and recognize they're not just one thing it's not just their trans identity it might be their race it might not, might not just be their disability it might be their their gender um, and to be able to be more incisive about the kind of things uh, that those people might need uh, but fundamentally it's the ability of an intersectional leader to stay curious um, and there's a, a lot of work um, by a woman called Juliet Burke, who's an Australian academic who's worked with big business. And she talks about curiosity and how inclusive leaders stay curious and use that as a, a lever for leadership. Um, and I do think there's some real merits in intersectional leaders kind of nurturing that side of themselves, um, knowing the questions that weren't asked about them, knowing the questions or assumptions that were made about them. Um, you know, how do we kind of pay that back in a kinder form um, when we are leading others? Um, and, I, you know, I did some training for LGBT Ed yesterday. Um, we were talking all about this. So it feels like something that I'm thinking a lot about at the moment. I love that idea of more positive narratives in that sense, because, you know, we've referenced Catherine Lee's article that she wrote um, last year. And in fact, she's going to be a guest in a few weeks, but talking about actually, I mean, she's talking about LGBT specifically, but the traits that might make them a good leader. And it's yeah. the things you've said there. It's the empathy, it's the ability to read people, it's risk taking, it's courage, all those things that might be coming from having a marginalised or intersectional identity. Absolutely. That's really good advice, Benny. This whole conversation has been so fascinating and, and also really special for me because throughout doing this podcast with Adam, we've met so many brilliant and fantastic people and I'm so blessed to, to hear their stories and to share conversations with them. But there are a handful of, of really special conversations because this podcast has given me, me the opportunity to talk to people who started this journey for me. When I first started teaching and I joined Twitter and I was looking at other people who are working in this space, there was, there was a select group of people that really inspired me and really pushed me to, to go further and to start engaging in these conversations. And, and you, Benny, and Hannah and Diverse Educators as a whole were part of that group of people that if, if you weren't holding space on Twitter, I don't think I'd be here having this conversation, running this podcast and, and, and trying to, to make our classrooms more inclusive now. And I'll just add to that um, because it was my, my own experience is the same. I, I, well, in 2018 at the LGBT Ed launch event, I attended that and you spoke at the closing panel and you were so inspiring talking about what you did every day in the classroom and you kind of used the phrase of live your values, don't laminate them. And that just captures so perfectly what I took for that day. And in the same way, it's going to mobilise me in the same way. So just from Joe and I, just the most enormous thank you. Oh, my goodness, guys. It's like I expected to come in here and have a really serious conversation. I didn't expect to be weeping at the end of it. But I really <laughs> appreciate that because I think 
people assume that when you're kind of involved in these things that you're super confident um but I'm a massive introvert and I'm constantly thinking am I doing the right thing so it's actually really nice to hear that what I thought I was doing back then felt really small and insignificant um but it's had an impact and that's all I can ask for and thank you so much for sharing that with me that's just lovely thank you um Betty thank you so much for joining us this morning it's been an absolute pleasure and as Joe and I have said there a lot of the work you've done has influenced us enormously so we can't thank you enough for that um we've touched upon the last question actually a little bit so it'd be nice to kind of hear your thoughts on this but the last question of course is what's the best thing then about being an LGBT teacher or leader what's the best thing oh my goodness I get to wear a rainbow lanyard every day which is so um, much more exciting than the, the lanyards that school give out but actually it's um being that role model um you know so many of my lgbt colleagues talk about the importance of being the teacher that you needed lgbt ed was very much about that be the person that you needed when you were younger uh, i think that's the best thing because i've got now students who know that i'm an out gay teacher and they're seeing me as someone um that is not just a guide to them but someone who will be comfort somebody who will be reassurance and and that's 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 the wonderful thing about being an lgbt teacher that was a fantastic answer, Benny. This conversation has been brilliant. I've really enjoyed talking about intersectionality and that's the intersectionality for you as a gay Asian teacher, for you as a teacher and a researcher, but also that intersectionality of learning and unlearning at the same time. The deeper that I explore diversity in education, the more I'm beginning to see that those intersections hold real power and hold real beauty. And I think about kind of the binary of day and night and the intersection of day and night is sunrise and sunset. And our, our world doesn't get any more powerful and beautiful and vibrant than those intersections. And I think the more that we explore those intersections, support people that exist in them and celebrate those intersections in education, the more we can begin to build real beauty in our schools. Thank you so much, Benny. Thank you for having me both. It's been an absolute pleasure. It was a total joy talking to Benny this morning. She is a really inspiring leader, teacher, person. And, you know, I've been admired her since the LGBT Ed Conference, like we talked about in the podcast there. But to hear the work she's done since then has been incredible. Yeah, I think it's really powerful when teachers bring together their own story, but also a really sound understanding of research, because then you can combine those things to really start to think about how we can make change in our educational spaces. Definitely. Really looking forward to our next book. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you enjoyed this conversation, we'd be really grateful if you could leave a review or a five-star rating. This really helps other educators to find these stories. If you want to continue the conversation or comment on this week's episode, you can find us on Twitter at Pride Progress. Thanks for listening. <laughs>